heavily, I'm a clown. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin 3D printed paperweights. Today is something different than the usual. Ben and I were contacted by an analyst named Jan from Voima Gold located in Finland who wanted to interview us on WTF happened in 1971, really just trying to get a feel for what our intentions were behind the site and some of our thoughts and feelings around the greater macroeconomic effects of what happened in 1971 and what has happened since, and where we see the future going under such an economic paradigm, and how we think those problems could be solved. Now, I do need to caveat this beforehand with the fact that this interview was recorded with the intention of being transcribed into a written article and was never meant to be published in audio form. However, because Ben and I are the shills that we are, we ended up spending about the second half of the interview shilling Bitcoin, and Voima, being a metals company, decided that it wasn't in their best interest to publish the second half of the interview in their coverage of our website, which is understandable. You know, they have bottom lines, and so do we. So there's no hard feelings there, but thankfully, Jan was kind enough to be able to get me the full audio recording of the interview because felt like it was a real shame to leave the entirety of the interview out of the public consumption because it was just a great conversation and I think that you guys are going to really like it. So thanks very much, Jan, for making this audio available to us, even though it was never intended to be released in this form. I do want to personally thank Jan just for reaching out to us and having the interview with us because he asks a lot of very insightful questions, and I thought that he was a very thoughtful interviewer. And if you guys want to see the article that he published in regards to our interview, I would encourage you to check that link out posted down in the show notes below. Oh, and one other thing that I've noticed recently, some of the podcast catchers like iTunes and I think Spotify don't carry over the hyperlinks that I put onto Anchor, which distributes out to all the podcast platforms. So if you want to access a hyperlink for anything in the show notes, just go to bitcoinechochamber.com and you'll find all the hyperlinks for the episodes there. And shout out to Voima Gold for even having us on in the first place. All right, so let's jump right into this and I will come back with you guys at the end. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTF Happened in 1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. So what are you guys, what, what is your background, both of you? Uh, ben, can I start with you? <laughs> uh, my background is very diverse. Um, you know, on my Twitter, I have uh, artists, linguists, uh, among many things. So I have lots of interests, lots of hobbies, 3D graphics background. Uh, I don't really have much of an economics background. But as of recently, I got very interested in, in economics. And I'm the type of person that when I get into something, I tend to kind of go all the way down the rabbit hole and, and learn about as much as possible, whether it's a, a video game I'm playing or what. I, I need to like learn everything about it. I've gotten into economics, and obviously we found this rabbit hole, and most of it's from our study of uh, money and monetary economics. So how did that start, your interest in uh, economics? 
I got interested in it because I got interested in Bitcoin and I tried to understand Bitcoin and realized I didn't understand what money was. And that required asking a lot of questions about um, the history of money, how it emerged, what its purpose is in society. Same question for you, Will Colin. What is your background? Just like Ben, we're, we're amateur Austrian economists. Neither of us have any formal education in finance or business or economics, um, which in a lot of ways has actually been to our benefit. We just like to ask questions. We've identified what we think are the first principles of economics, reading Mises and, and Rothbard. When, when we discovered how to think from first principles when it comes to economics, we realized that that's the best way for people to learn by asking questions first rather than starting with a conclusion. That, that probably best explains us. We like to ask questions. We like to ask why. Okay, very good. My next question is, what made you launch the website about economic developments that started in 1971? In our learning about the history of money, obviously discovered the Nixon shock and the ending of Bretton Woods Agreement. If you look at the, like the Wikipedia page, for example, at the end of Bretton Woods and Nixon shock, you'll find a few of those charts that are on the website. You know, I, I thought those were fascinating that, you know, this actually seemingly pretty important fundamental change in our society had along with it some pretty interesting data that kind of exploded in that time. And we started kind of collecting more and more of these charts that when we were talking to people, they were like, oh yeah, but look at this chart. And then we kind of started being like, wish we had a repository where we could just put all these charts to point people to. The meme was kind of born. It was Colin's idea to, to just ask the question, what the fuck happened? <laughs> That's a very good one. Nice. So what do you say are the most significant developments that have occurred since 1971? Monetary expansion. It's hard, right? And we get a lot of criticism on this where people will say, oh, uh, you're not taking into account many of the regulatory changes or the uh, sociocultural changes that happened around that same time period, right, that, that caused some of these second and third order effects that you attribute to this one 1971 data point. If, if you were to sit down and talk with us, we'd tell you that the story goes back much further, right? We would trace it back to uh, 1933 and 1944, and we would look at uh, the Great Depression in America in 1929. We'd look at the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. And then ideally, we'd go all the way back to the birth of fiat currencies in, in the United States uh, before the U.S. was even a country. Uh, we'd look at the early fiat experiments. We'd go back to the bimetal standards. We'd look at the process of coin clipping under the feudal lords. The story obviously doesn't start in 1971, but certainly that's when there's an interesting inflection in the data that you can point to and say, look, what happened? What happened here? Everything went crazy. And, and we attribute this expansion of monetary policy to gross malinvestment, malinvestment that's perpetuated and unable to be liquidated uh, in such a way that it creates second and third order problems in our society that are exacerbated as this bubble continues to be expanded in the can of the liquidation of malinvestment is kicked down the road. Right. And how does that tie into, because what I'm very interested in is indeed what you just mentioned are like uh, social developments as well. And, you know, there's some political stuff and everything is connected to each other, of course. But there's a lot of, for example, the first chart I see is about inequality. So how does what you just said ties into inequality in society? I think the greatest driver of inequality today is asset inflation, which is a direct result of monetary inflation. When you increase the money supply, you're going to increase the cost of hard goods, like stock, for example. And the deterioration of the moneyness of money, because the store value aspect of money is important, has led society to use other 
assets as money, like stocks and real estate. We hold our wealth in these things. And every financial advisor will tell you, don't hold dollars. What's wrong with you? The disproportionate access to these assets causes a, a wealth stratification in society because the poorer you are, the less access you have to hold assets as a percentage of your wealth. And the more wealthy you are, the larger percentage of your wealth you can hold in assets. I have a whole chart that just shows, like, you know, at different wealth levels, what percentage of your asset, like your car is a significant percentage of your wealth when you're, when you're poor, but that's a depreciating asset. Um, but, you know, the wealthy can hold like 95% of their wealth in these assets that inflate because of monetary inflation, which has drawn society apart and hollowed out the middle class. So those stocks are very disproportionately held by the wealthiest. That's something like 10% of the population controls like 84% of all stocks, for example. Right. Do you think that, for example, there are you guys are from the United States, there's a lot of social unrest now in the United States. Do you think this is related to that? Absolutely. Yes. We, we don't think that people, people, they don't internalize why, but they look around and they understand that things are wrong. They understand that intuitively. Being of our generation or even the younger ones today that enter the world that have no exposure to the asset inflation Ponzi, uh, they're starting off their lives at a disadvantage, right? It's much harder for them to get an education. It's much harder for them to get assets that appreciate uh, by inflation, such as a home or equities. And then they're working with a depreciating currency to store their value in the short term in order to build a base for themselves with which to acquire assets. And to add on to what Ben said, what we've also seen is a major disruption in economic calculation because of the artificially low discount rate that we've seen for so long that's perpetuated by central banks. Really since the late 80s in the United States, we've seen the discount rate continue to be artificially pushed down despite the fact that there isn't the accumulation of capital that in a free market would normally push that discount rate towards lower numbers. We're seeing that number artificially brought down by central banks. You're watching the replacement cost of assets exceed the replacement cost of capital. Capital is so cheap for these businesses that they are more financially incentivized to borrow money and use that money to pump the price of their equities rather than reinvest in serving the demands of the consumer. And this is why we see companies in America like Apple, which are very, very cash rich, borrowing money in order to buy back their equity so that they can pump the value of their assets rather than try to earn capital by being entrepreneurs, which is how the world is supposed to work in a free market. What I'm thinking about, and maybe you guys can help me formulate the question, is first we had the dot-com bubble, then we had the housing bubble. The only thing that is really keeping the economy going is the next bubble, right? Am I correct? Yeah, it, it's a feedback loop of um, pumping liquidity into the system to prevent the liquidation of malinvestment. As that liquidity enters the system, more malinvestment is created and the bubble just gets bigger. This is the idea also of like zombie companies, the zombie economy, which I'm sure you're familiar with. That is the malinvestment. These are companies that should have probably gone over under, weren't it for 0% interest loans that keep them alive. Them still staying around is, is actually kind of destructive to society because these things should have been liquidated. So these things that aren't really profitable remain nominally profitable, but they, they wouldn't otherwise. If you study the business cycle, you'll see that these things are very predictable. They tend to go in 10-year cycles. And you look at the 
quote-unquote coronavirus pandemic that we saw that everyone is attributing our current economic downturn to uh, is, oh, well, no one could have seen this coronavirus coming. However, if you were paying close attention to the financial markets in the precursors of the COVID, uh, you were seeing signs, warning signs that things were beginning to malfunction. You were watching the repurchase agreement markets melt down in the United States. Financial institutions were choosing interest on excess reserves at the Fed over participation in the repo markets, which doesn't make sense in a market where there's profit to be made. You saw an inversion of the yield curve, the 10 and 2-year bond yield on the U.S. Treasury market. Um, these are warning signs and, and extremely low unemployment rates. These are warning signs by the Fed's own admission of a potential upcoming recession in 12 to 18 months. And yet, because of the public's lack of awareness to these economic principles, they think that this economic downturn was caused solely by governments and corporate organizations demanding that people stay home uh, and don't work, uh, rather than it being attributed to the business cycles that always happen under these types of expansionary monetary policies. Do you think there's a um, strong lobby from the banking industry to keep this system how it is? Because, for example, there are also some things to uh, we can point out, like deregulation, that had also caused a lot of problem, but that maybe was you know lobbied by special interest groups, which was possible because uh, since 1971 we don't have an anchor to gold anymore. Right. That's the key. So I actually think this is one of the greatest misconceptions about the data on our site. There's a version of our website that does exactly the same thing we do, but they point to 1980 as the problem, and they point to Reagan as the problem and the deregulation that happened at that time. This is like the opposite of what I, I believe. That deregulation would be a good thing if we had a hard money, but it's because of the, the soft money that we have that, that cause the real problems, not the deregulation itself. Deregulation itself just allowed it to run free, if you will. If you talk about causality, the first cause is the soft money policy, and then you got a chain of events which don't help to society neither, but it's not the main problem. Regarding 1971, of course, the soft money is base money is created by uh, central banks. Do you think we can do without central banks, and would it be a good idea? Under the fiat system or under a free market money system? Under your ideal system. Yeah, I think that central banks, we often attribute central banks to the, the feudal lords that, that clip, clip the coins and then recirculate the currencies at their face value. If you study things like the Cancelon effect, you know that those with the fewest degrees of separation from the printing press benefit the most from the creation of new currency. That's by design. It has to work that way. If you were to increase the relative currency nominal currency values of everybody at the same time equally across the board, nothing would change. You have to, in expansionary monetary policies, increase the purchasing power, the relative purchasing power of certain groups more than others, or else you are not redistributing wealth, uh, and expansionary monetary policy effectively does nothing. Right. So the, the answer would be, yes, we can do without central banks, and it would be better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think we will return to a gold standard? We could, um, but it wouldn't solve the problem. Okay, how's that? You, you look at what caused 1971. We, a lot of people think that with our website, we're pointing to what happened when you go off of the gold standard. But the, the problems started much earlier than that. They can be traced back much farther. In 1971, the U.S. defaulted on its promise to pay gold out of the U.S. Treasury 
in exchange for dollars, uh, to which every other currency was pegged under the Bretton Woods system. 1971 represents the breaking point of a system that's built on third-party security vulnerabilities. Uh, that is, gold has certain centralizing properties, such as its weight and the fact that you have to transport it across the world in order to settle internationally. There were all kinds of problems with this in World War I and World War II, settling this gold between nations to settle debts. This, this problem of, of centralizing that happens with gold, where it ends up in vaults, IOUs are, are issued out by those banks that control the gold. That's a, a third-party security vulnerability that led to 1971 and, and gave us the fiat system. So we believe that returning to that um, system that doesn't solve the problem of third-party security vulnerabilities would simply recreate the same problem. At the same time, gold has preserved its purchasing power more or less for thousands of years and has always officially or unofficially has been a reliable store of value. So how did that came to be for, for such an extended period? You, you say maybe gold is more suitable as a store of value rather than as the basis for a monetary system? Right. It's, it, I agree with everything you said, but it is no longer a suitable medium of exchange by modern demand. And 1971 was the failure of gold as a money because even if you went back to a gold standard, you could go off again, right? And obviously, us going off a of gold standard was bad. I agree that gold has preserved some of its value, a great deal of its value, and historically had done so. But that's because of its monetary premium today. If something else were to become money, it would uh, stand to lose value. Like monetary premium is a value above the use value of the thing as a commodity. Right, yeah. Money always has a monetary premium because money is never useful to us. Money never has any use value. It only has monetary value. Although with gold, like 1% of it we use for uh, industries. So maybe, I know you guys are into Bitcoin and maybe you see some monetary system based on Bitcoin. Would that be different than a gold standard or would that be like a gold standard based on Bitcoin? Sure. So you have to start by looking at the monetary properties of gold, right? Because you said that um, gold has had a long history of being a very good money. And even now, under the fiat system, it continues to appreciate in, in its relative purchasing power. And, and that's very true. And that's because of the monetary properties of gold, right? Gold is somewhat divisible, right? I mean, you can make it into little coins. You can chop it into, up into very small pieces. It can be easily weighed and measured. It's, it's very durable. Gold lasts for a very long time. It has a high stock-to-flow ratio. It's hard to get more gold, right? Um, and that's why gold has always been the best money is because even as the value goes up, it has to go up quite a great deal in order for gold miners to be able to profitably pull more gold out of the earth. This is much different than other less rare base metals like silver or copper, for example. And this is why copper was always the money of the peasants is because it was much more easily inflated. It didn't have nearly as high of a stock to flow ratio as gold does. So you look at Bitcoin and you look at all of the properties that made gold good money. Uh, and Bitcoin not only shares a lot of those properties, but actually improves upon many of the properties of gold, especially that which was its downfall, which is its divisibility and portability. Bitcoin is solved the problem of digital scarcity via what Satoshi Nakamoto called the time chain. He solved the double spend problem, the Byzantine generals problem. I won't get into that now, but basically he made it so that there can only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. So Bitcoin theoretically has a better stock to flow ratio than gold. But more than that, it can be sent over the internet without any permissions, 
without any banking regulations, without any financial institutions. There is no trusted third party in the issuance and the sending and receiving of Bitcoin. Right. So, But if we have a monetary system based on Bitcoin, how would that be better than what we have now or a gold standard? Because there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. It cannot be inflated. And Bitcoin is an open source protocol. So things can be built on top of Bitcoin, much like the banking services we have today. We anticipate a Bitcoin standard world would look similar, but at the same time, very different from the world that we have that's built around physical commodities like gold or even paper like dollars. We anticipate most of the Bitcoin banking world would be built with software. Right, but the soft money we just talked about that started mainly after 1971, but of course much sooner, is very expansionary, inflationary, but Bitcoin has a, quite a limited supply. I mean, in a, in a few years, I believe in 2040, there are hardly uh, more Bitcoins being mined, so that will be very deflationary, right? I mean, how do you emphasize a monetary system that doesn't, where the base money doesn't grow? Right, so... I think this also comes from um, a general societal misunderstanding of deflation. We, as a society, rail against deflation. We're afraid of it. We we're terrified of, of this horrible beast that is deflation. Inflation and deflation are neither good nor bad, but there are certain uh, winners and losers in each scenario. Inflationary environments benefit debtors and it, it benefits asset holders. And deflationary environments benefit savers and fixed income people. I personally understand deflation as being much better for society than inflation. It's a very mild amount of deflation. However, let's look at why people are so afraid of deflation. And it's because of 1929, which Colin mentioned earlier. This story is a very long story. But 1929, most people see as the, the failure of gold as money. And therefore, we needed fiat to save us. But I see it much differently. And this comes back to this third-party problem and being able to inflate the paper that's supposed to be backed by the gold. If you look at the monetary supply in the 1920s leading up to 1929, you realize that there was a great deal of inflation. And it was the contraction of that money supply coming back to reality that was the event of 1929. It was because of the inflation and the eventual contraction that had to happen when they realized you know, there wasn't enough gold in the vault. Everyone went to go take it out. And it caused a hyper-deflationary event, which was very bad because of the economic calculation disruption from the change in paradigm uh, and the distortion of prices, therefore. Earlier, we talked about the discount rates and we talked about economic calculation. Uh, it's always going to be better for the consumer who benefits from all of these great goods and services that we have in the free market for the entrepreneur to have a lower replacement cost of assets than a replacement cost of capital. Because right now we have the opposite, right? We, we have this system where entrepreneurs are incentivized to hoard assets uh, because the replacement cost of capital is so low. But if the replacement cost of capital is higher than the replacement value of assets, then businesses are incentivized to save. We might not even have this problem that we have in the world today if capital was easier to save because it had deflationary effects. The savers benefit in the long run, and then they're better able to withstand periods of uncertainty, such as the uh, modern coronavirus. And, and hoarding assets, by the way, is much worse for society than hoarding money. People think hoarding money is bad and they picture all these rich billionaires swimming in their uh, pools of gold coins. But hoarding real estate is, is what's the paradigm today where it's like 10% of uh, New York City real estate, the most prime real estate in the world, 
sits vacant because people use it as a store of value and not for its real economic use. Yeah. It's disrupting the economic use of these assets because of the broken money. So you're saying that uh, because of the broken money, real estate has become a financial asset? It's become a money-like device. Yeah, 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 okay. Suppose we go to a Bitcoin standard. Why wouldn't we be able to leave abandon that as well? Because there will be incentives by, by... Are you against fractional reserve uh, banking? I think that's another widely misunderstood thing. I, I think that the incentives of the lender of last resort are what allow fractional reserve banking to be the kind of scourge on society that it is. But Yeah, so we think that the reason Bitcoin is, is so great is that it routes around, because it routes around the need for third parties, such as banking institutions that issue the currency, we believe that it will route around the need for a central authority to determine what is money. We would much rather live in a world where the free market decides what is money, and we don't advocate that any one central authority says, okay, we're moving to a Bitcoin standard and this is how it will look. We would much rather have a system where the free market determines what the money is, which is largely what gold always was. We just believe that we'll win in the free market battle for the best money because of the problems that it solves that gold has um, that ultimately led to its failure in 1971. And fractional reserve banking, we think, is a bit of a misnomer because any any lending institution, by definition, has to be under collateralized to a certain degree. You, you can't issue debt and remain 100% fully collateralized on your deposits because that defeats the purpose. But we do think that the banking agreement between the customer and the business needs to be more clear. For example, the banking account that you have today, that money in your account is not yours. It's been lent out to other debtors of the banks, which then use that money to go and purchase a home or start a business. We don't believe that that relationship is clear enough between the customer and the uh, business. I agree. Yeah, I'm, I'm not against fractional reserve uh, banking uh, either. So you guys are actually advocating for competing currencies and not specifically for a Bitcoin standard? We believe that Bitcoin will win uh, and under a system of competing currencies. I, I heard you ask the question five times and I don't think we answered it, so I apologize. But we don't see that governments will just decide one day to issue a currency backed by Bitcoin. I mean, they may. But it doesn't matter because Bitcoin is a fairer asset. It doesn't require the third parties. And that was the failure of gold because we didn't transact in gold, even though it was technically our money until 1971. People stopped using it in the early 1900s because it wasn't a good medium of exchange, as I, as I said before. So it's it's not about Bitcoin standard. I think that's also a misnomer, I think, a misunderstanding that, that Bitcoin is a money that people use and hold themselves. That would be true. When it was, uh, just off the record again, when it was uh, trading at like $20,000, the, the transfer costs were pretty high, right, for Bitcoin. It was mm -hmm. quite a slow. You think that is all going to be solved by like technology, lighting uh, network uh, and all that? Sure. Uh, this technology is very new. It's very misunderstood by a lot of people. It's extremely technically dense. Uh, and there's a lot of layers that need to get built out to it. You know, it's very similar to... Uh, going back and looking at the internet in the 1970s and the advances in, in home computing. Things were very, very different 20, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago than they are today. You look at how quickly technology changes as it proliferates throughout society and more and more eyes get onto it and more and more applications and software layers are built around something. 
Bitcoin is very similar to the TCP IP stack of the internet that was built uh, in the 1960s. Um, I believe it was the 60s when TCP IP came out. All of what we do, this, this phone conversation that we're having today on the internet, is built on top of that stack. We had tried to have this conversation via a video call 40 years ago. It wouldn't have happened because the layers of technology hadn't been built out yet. It would have been too slow. It would have been too cumbersome to use. And, and we never would have been able to make it happen. But it was only the visionaries who saw the potential of things that could be built on top of this new network that made what we have today possible. Right, that's clear. So uh, my final question is about, uh, you know, Plan B, the guy with the stock to flow who kind of became famous with the stock to flow model. His latest article was somewhat different in which he yeah, pointed out several phases of Bitcoin. Do you believe in uh, what are your thoughts about his uh, his articles? All models are wrong. Some are useful sometimes. Nice. Can you elaborate on that? There may be some, quote, truth to it. But this kind of goes back to the, the whole efficient market hypothesis. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of that, that, that everything is priced in into infinity, right? Um, and I don't think that's the case. I think that what, stop, what Plan B has done is he has done an amazing analysis on the supply side of this asset. Does not factor at all the demand side of the asset. Attempts to correlate demand side with the price side, or with the supply side. But I think it fails to do that, and it it may break and it may not. I think it's a really interesting analysis, and I think it helps people. You know, as economic calculators, we can use this tool. But to believe that this is some kind of infallible idea of exactly what the price will be at any point in time is, is I think, very, very misguided. And more than just the supply and demand side, um, the x-axis of his work on the stock-to-flow model is the, the Bitcoin stock-to-flow, which is knowable. It's a known variable. We can extrapolate that out very far into the future, and it's, it's certain. The y-axis of his chart, uh, the price in dollars, we look at monetary policy today, and it's very unpredictable. There are a small group of people who determine the U.S. dollar monetary policy in a very short amount of time and can change the denominator of that dollar value very, very quickly, as we've seen in the last few months, which means that it's very difficult to accurately predict what that dollar value is going to look like, even in a year or two, with the rate of change that we're seeing at the current monetary policy. Right. So that basically points out nominal value versus real value. Yeah. We yeah, believe yeah. It, it, his model could very quickly be invalidated um, to the upside. So what are your predictions for uh, Bitcoin? <laughs> a million dollars by next week. <laughs> I think that's for gold. No, <laughs> it's always fun. No, but he, he has some, you know, do you, do you think the price should go up uh, if it's uh, being used more? As Colin points out, the price of Bitcoin is denominated in U.S. dollars. So that's already, in both of our opinions, as a proponent of gold yourself and ours, a, a terrible denominator, right? We believe the real value of Bitcoin will rise in the future as A, it scales, as Colin was talking about, as it becomes more useful, as B, people become more aware of how useful this technology is, and C, already people around the world are using this for very different things in many different places. In Venezuela, they're using it as a temporary store of value and converting it back into um, bolivars to, as a medium exchange, they use the bolivars and they use Bitcoin as a as a store of value in, in Africa and Asia they use it for remittances for global payments because that's what is more useful 
the technology, what it solves there. Well, like Colin and myself, we use it as a speculation on the future of this value that our, and our holding of it, dollar cost averaging into this thing, supports it and our risk that we're taking that Bitcoin could fail, so to speak, helps give it value because of that reserve demand. We believe that the biggest demand pressure on Bitcoin will come from the speculators uh, because of its disinflationary nature. You tend to see these four-year cycles that happen around the Bitcoin having that cause supply shocks to the market that can cause very rapid price appreciations. And it's often these price appreciations that you've witnessed historically, you know, the last one was in 2017, that, that brings a frenzy of new attention to Bitcoin speculation. And this is often what brings in new entrants who spend a lot of time and, and dedicate a lot of time to research in learning about how this technology works and learning about what they can do to help further its adoption and, and evolution. Uh, and that's how both Ben and I came into it was the the price appreciation. And we believe that this is a feedback loop that will continue to bring new entrants into the space. Okay. Well, thank you both uh, very much. I learned uh, some more about Bitcoin. I think we touched a lot of great topics. It was very interesting to talk to you guys. I'm very curious uh, what the future will hold. These are exciting times. Let's see if, if um, what the future brings. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Once again, shout out to Jan for making that audio available to us. I really thought it was a cool conversation, and I wanted you guys to be able to hear it in its full form. If you guys are enjoying the show, please leave some likes or comments or subscriptions or thumbs up or stars or whatever it is on whatever platform you're listening to the show on. It really helps us grow the audience and get the message of Bitcoin and sound economics to more people. You can find all of our episodes at BitcoinEchoChamber.com, or you can find us on just about any of your favorite podcast catcher. And as well, you can get in touch with us if you have questions or comments, or if you would like to potentially be a guest on the show, you can email us at BitcoinEchoChamber at gmail.com, or you can reach out to either Ben or I on Twitter. Our DMs are open. I am at HeavilyArmedC, that's the letter C, and Ben is Mr. Cool BP. Those are the letters BP. Anyways, guys, that's all I got for this one. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you in the next one.